risking hair and skin. If we're behind, then never mind. We'll fight and fight and win, for we're from Tigerland. We never weaken till the final siren's gone. Like the tiger of old, we're strong and we're bold, for we're from Tigerland. Yellow and black, we're from Tigerland. Okay, hello and welcome to the fourth episode of People's Game. Uh, we have a special guest with us in the studio this evening. We're going to jump straight into Book Club and we're joined by Conrad Marshall, who is the author of Yellow and Black, A Season with Richmond. Conrad, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. No problems. It's uh, our pleasure. So we want to start off straight away with uh, just discussing your affliction with Richmond. It all started somewhere for all of us. And um, yeah, I just want to get your earliest memories of being a Tiger supporter. Yeah, I picked Fitzroy when I was about four, I think because lions seemed like a, a cool, scary animal, but then their colours were, I don't know, kind of lame. Red, blue and yellow or whatever it was, just not, um, not that impressive. And then I saw that there were tigers and yellow and black and I loved that old logo of the, the realistic animal sort of coming out of the badge and I was like, I was sold on that. And that was about 1983 when I was five years old and <laughs> that means that I'm part of that generation of Tigers fans, 40 years old now, who had um, really just half a life of, um, yeah, not, um, not a lot of satisfaction or um, success. You know, I tell people often my premiership is the 1995 second semi-final against Essendon. That's, that's like as good as it got. Mm-hmm. It was a great, great game, but... We got flogged by Geelong mm. to the tune of 80-something points the next week. So it's been a tough, tough road to hoe uh, until now. I love that you mentioned that because my grand final was always round 22, 2001, we beat Essendon to make the four. Oh. And I remember we came over from Adelaide for that game and then we had to play them the next week and they beat us by like 60 points the next week. And obviously then we went on to beat Carlton and all the rest. But um, it's interesting. So you mentioned Fitzroy. Did you have a geographical connection to either club or was it just a bit of a random... Thing totally you, random. Totally I just random. Uh, yeah. loved the idea of a big scary animal being the, mm. the mascot. I'm from the southeastern suburbs. Mum barracked for Melbourne. Dad was a Footscray supporter. Big brother barracked for Essendon. Another brother barracked for Hawthorne. So we're a total ragtag family. But mm-hmm. you heard the brothers. Um, Essendon and Hawthorne. Imagine what it's like being a Richmond supporter throughout the 1980s when two of your brothers are fighting over flags and you're copping wooden spoons. Like, it was a unique position to be in. Wow, okay, I can't imagine that was fun. So you mentioned your family. Talk us through uh, Conrad Marshall as a young bloke. What were you like? Were you, you know, a budding English student? How did you come to combine this sort of literary love with football? Well, mum was uh, an English teacher, Mm. um, so I, I was a bit of a reader as a, as a kid. I didn't really think that that would end up being a, a path I would pursue as an adult, um, but I did love my footy, um, and probably to the exclusion of all other sports, and it's sort of still that way for me. Like, I'm really... I'm just not interested in soccer or basketball. There was a, maybe a brief flirtation with English Premier League when I was in high school, mm-hmm. and sort of interest in NFL for a bit there, but mainly it was footy and just mm-hmm. an obsession with the Tigers and, and I played and um, you know loved playing all throughout juniors and mm-hmm. continued on into amateurs as well, even at um, you know, even after university, still sort of kicking the ball mm-hmm. around at suburban level, trying to knock blokes over from mm-hmm. centre half back and 
Yeah, it's just passionate about the way it feels to be out on the, the turf running around, mm-hmm. you know, the, the smell of locker rooms and fresh cut grass and mud in the middle of winter. And yeah, I just, I just loved that game. Yeah. Mm. So you mentioned you played centre-half back. And ruck. Yeah. And ruck. Okay, so who were you in the backyard as a kid? Because we started off in Franks and we had this beautiful gnarled tree. And I was Richo until about age eight. And then I became Kane Pettifer. <laughs> which is incredibly strange and Richmond fans are probably looking at this and what is going on but anyway Kane Pettifer had blonde hair and I had blonde hair and I couldn't keep cutting my hair like Joel Bowden because he had brown hair but who were you in the backyard? Yeah I guess I had to be Scott Turner I don't remember like um, believing in that but uh, but do you remember when he knocked out O'Donnell on the wing uh, in that second semi-final? Yeah he was a, he was a tough fullback who um Gee, he copped a lot, didn't he? Dunstall kicking 17 goals on him, that kind of thing. Um, mm. It was rough. Yeah. God, okay, so those were tough old times. So, <laughs> um, do you remember reading what sort of books as a teenager left the biggest impression on, on you? Is there any specific titles or writers that you remember looking at and going, oh, I want to do that when I get older? No, I don't think that sort of came for me until um, my 20s. Like, I didn't have a passion for, mm-hmm. I didn't have a hardcore passion for the written word as a teenager um Mm. i did well in english i went to melbourne high school and was a good creative writer i guess but um not a not a hardcore reader until um, i sort of got into communications and media as an adult yeah Mm. and then it was primarily sort of it was magazines it was long form so i lived in the united states for about eight years, which is where I um, started my journalism career. And while I was there, magazine subscriptions were so cheap. They were like 10 bucks for a year of, of a great title. So I just mm-hmm. like, all right, I'll subscribe to Esquire, GQ, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, um, Rolling Stone, The Economist, uh, just all of it. I had like a dozen of them going at once and I struggled to keep up with them because some of those are mm-hmm. big, beastly kind of weekly publications. But man, you just got exposed to some of the, the really great magazine writers like um, Gary Smith at uh, Sports Illustrated. His pieces would, which is mm-hmm. a revelation to me and Tom Juno at... Um, Esquire, uh, people like David Grant and William Languish and Nick Palmgarten at mm-hmm. variously like Vanity Fair and New Yorker and I just fell in love with long form narrative journalism over there mm-hmm. which um, yeah seemed seemed really popular throughout the newsrooms when I was there it was mm-hmm. uh, yeah that was a big thing for me. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about long form sports journalism in this country because. I don't know if there's a void, but I think, and you probably are the same, Gordon, there's a lot more of it in America. Mm. Do you do you agree with that? Yeah, there's probably just not enough um, print real estate for it here. I think there's you know an appetite for it. It's just there are only so many forums that are going to print 3,000 words or 4,000 words and almost none that will print anything above that. So mm-hmm. I'm lucky enough to write for Good Weekend where I can get away with stories that length um, from time to time and then where else could you do that? Sort of the, the Weekend Australian magazine has great long features. After that, it just sort of falls off a cliff. I don't know if there's a, a spot for them, um, which is a shame. But the US, of course, has so many more outlets. They've got such a big audience to draw on, 300 million people versus 20-something. Um, yeah, 
and and then so many really big moneyed up sort of sports over there to to draw on whereas we have kind of a a limited repertoire here I, I think you know our best soccer players go overseas our best basketball players go overseas um we have cricket, but it's really popular at that international level. So they're, they're away. The domestic competition isn't that interesting, although Big Bash has proven me wrong over the last you know, mm. 10 years or so. But just um, that's why it's great to be in Melbourne, where you're in the absolute heart of the obvious biggest domestic comp in the land. And so when you were living in America, you said you weren't overly interested in sports other than AFL. So what were you writing about? Were there you sports that you got into writing about? Or were you writing about other stuff completely while you were over there? I was writing about other stuff completely. I mean, I would dip into sports mm-hmm. now and then, but I was a big arts journalist. Um, I was also uh, writing um, about politics at a local level. So I started at a very small newspaper in upstate New York, a tiny town, which is where my wife's from. Uh, and I was just writing everything from... You know, uh, stories about a truck smash on the freeway or village zoning boards um, to profiles of mayoral candidates, uh, local outsider artists. And then I went to a bigger market in Florida, uh, the Florida Times Union in Jacksonville. Um, and there I was writing about, um, you know, everything from sort of uh, soldiers committing suicide after coming back from the Middle East to uh, Haitian war criminals settling in Florida to homelessness and uh, mental illness, large features on that. Uh, Then I went to Indianapolis, um, wrote for the Indianapolis Star, which was, again, just that step up to a slightly bigger Mm. newspaper. And it was the same thing again. And, yeah, there was a little bit of sport sort of mingled in there, but I wasn't writing about it that much. And um, unfortunately, there wasn't really great AFL uh, coverage or streaming or anything available to me then. I basically had to listen to games on radio. Like I'd go on to an AFL Live something or other site. And I remember they had these weird little... uh, You could see the oval and you could see where the ball was moving, like where it had been kicked in this little graphic (laughs) representation. And you've got to sit there cheering for something you can't see. It's wonderful. Um, and of course, they still weren't very good. So it was a pretty miserable experience yeah. to wait up until 3 a.m. to watch and listen to it's that. It's funny because I the three years I lived in England were actually the three years that we started to get good and we made finals all three years. But by then you had the AFL app over the internet, so it was so much easier. But just going back a step, you wrote about so much stuff that wasn't sport. Mm. How did that change the way that you write about sport? Gee, that's a good question. Uh, I think I just, um, if I wasn't particularly interested in the overall topic, so let's say I was writing about a a mayoral race and I didn't really care because I wasn't the political reporter at the newspaper, then I probably had to find the the human story in it. Uh, And I think generally, I guess I sort of learned over there that if you look at anything closely enough and look for the human angle in it, you, you will find something worth writing about. Uh, and so I think I learned perhaps to just do a deeper level of questioning to really hunt hard for access to my sources so that I could spend a lot of time with them, really get to know them, circle them um, by interviewing people around them, um, just to, to build up these stories that were interesting. And that serves you pretty well with sports writing as well, because um, 
I don't know, sports is already sort of inherently interesting to me. And it's, it's a dramatic contest of winners and losers and glory and failure. And um, so, yeah, if I brought that kind of the reporting that I'd done on less exciting topics to an exciting topic like sport, um, made it a lot easier. And so you very much went into sports writing with a focus on people and trying to illuminate people that make the game as colourful as it is. Yeah, I think so. And that's that's sort of where I've ended up with a lot of the sports features that I do right now. You know, I write them for Good Weekend and they tend to be profiles. So really, like, got to just try my hardest to get into the head of Ash Barty one month or James Sutherland a different month or... Um, Robert Thompson, the, uh, the sort of the winningest jockey in Australia, who's like 56 and has ridden 20,000 races more than anyone else in the country and 4,000-something winners more than anyone else in Australian mm. history as well. And um, Yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun being able to do those sorts of profiles. Will mm. Power was, a one, was one that I really enjoyed as well. He was an IndyCar driver, or is an IndyCar driver, and the US and I was fortunate enough to get over there and see him compete at the Indy 500 and again it just um, I love writing that colour from the scene I probably go to that well a little bit too often at times I start a few too many stories with a description of what it is I'm seeing but I try to sort of see these stories cinematically and so I want to describe where we are when we're talking to that person. Mm -hmm. And when you're at the Indy 500 and there's 400,000 people there and they're baking in the sun and they're drinking Coors Light and smoking cigars and there's like the perfume of ethanol firing up the track, it's like it's very hard not to almost overwrite that stuff. Yeah. So you mentioned you've written about a lot of people. I've read the Ash Barty piece, I've read others. Is there an athlete that you haven't written about that totally intrigued you? Like, if you had one athlete and you had one more feature to write, who would it be? It's funny, I was just asked this today by um, some prospective students that I'll be <laughs> teaching at Homesglen. Um, and funnily enough, I reckon it would be, and he'd make a good book as well, it's, um, it's Dermot Brereton. Uh, I think mm. he has a really deep, um, sort of dark backstory that I don't think a lot of people are really very aware of namely sort of um, a father who was in trouble with the law who may have had sort of IRA ties I think there were mm. stories of him sort of having you know running guns through their house but he was also a jazz musician I think or a performer and a taxi driver um, and, and I believe he took his own life uh, I think Dermot's brother took his own life as well um, you know, Dermot grew up in Frankston, uh, which mm. back then would have been you know, rougher than it is now. And I think he was a real bash and crash, rough kind of guy. And then he turns into this, you know, flamboyant sort of mm. rough and tumble footballer, but with those strange long golden curls. And I just, I just think if you could get someone like him to really open up about all of that stuff he would be a dynamite sort of mm. um, story to crack open. Yeah. I've actually met Dermot. It was around 1, 2008, and we were just talking to him on the fence, and he was talking to us, because he's a Frankston person, and that's where I was born, and he was okay. telling us all of these stories about his youth in Frankston, and it's a mighty shame that I can't remember more of them, because I was probably only, what, 13 at the time. But have you met him personally? No, just in passing, like mm. in the media room occasionally when I'm covering games and really just chatted about 
whatever match was unfolding at the time mm. so I can't say I've ever spoken to him personally but yeah mm. I, think it, I think it'd be a great one um, I can't think of who else I'd write about but he'd be a good one so let's pop on to the book that you did actually get to write because mm. I'm sure that that's what some of our listeners are waiting for um, the original idea for this book talk us through it and talk us through the logistics of organising to do something like this yeah I, I think um, I'd always had it in the back of my mind that I'd like to write a book about a football season you know, pretty much my favourite book I guess is um, is Friday Night Lights although I did reread it recently and it, I remember being much more enamoured of it the, the first and second time that I mm-hmm. read it which was quite a while ago uh, anyway I'd always wanted to do something like that uh, I didn't think it would ever be possible inside an AFL club being, um, you know, so locked down uh, the way that they are. So I, I thought, you know, maybe I would do that kind of thing for a, a rural, like a regional town football club because I think I reckon those are compelling stories, particularly mm-hmm. the ones that have, you know, the big pokey pubs and they pay these mercenary players to, you know, drive up from the city and perform. I reckon that's really interesting and probably something people don't know about, but. Anyway, for one reason or another, when Richmond lost that final to North Melbourne, the third elimination final in as many years that we'd bowed out through, uh, I just remember thinking, steady as she goes, let's not melt memberships. You know, I, I wasn't, I mean, I was crushed, but at the same time, I thought they're still ready to take another step. Uh, and I wrote a nice, um, I think a nice column about why, you know, we, we should just take a moment to pause and breathe and mm-hmm. realise that the list is good. Uh, and then after I'd written it, I was like, eh, maybe, that, maybe there's a, you know, a good book in what will happen to them. They're, they're a team that's come through a lot of choppy water and mm-hmm. they're, they're into some sort of smooth sailing now, potentially. And so I just approached the club with a phone call to... or sorry, an email to Simon Matthews, a phone call, left a message... Didn't hear anything for two weeks and really thought, well, that's that, you know. I, I probably didn't expect to hear anything, but I was like, well, I'll just give him a call anyway. I'll give him another call. Um, mm. And he was happy to have coffee with me, and I think sitting down talking about, uh, you know, what a book might look like and what I think the story of Richmond is, which was then really an extraordinary sort of rebuild, one that was done in the most compromised era. We're talking about... Oh, there was a time they finished third from the bottom and their first draft pick was 15. You know, it was a shocking time to bottom out. Uh, they got Brandon Ellis, though, so they did well with that first pick. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, I just thought they were a compelling story and so did Simon, and I think he put it to a few people in the footy department, but ultimately Damien Hardwick liked the idea and said uh, yes, and I think once the coach is on board, everybody else kind of falls in a line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't take too much work convincing the board uh, to sign on although there was a uh, proviso and that's that if Richmond um, had a bad year they could pull the plug on the the project and we know what happened in 2016 (laughs) Mm, so there's a bit to digest there so when you you mentioned Friday Night Lights and I'll go there first when you so you okay yeah we've teed this up we're doing it what did you then go and read to inform how you would approach this, or had you already done that reading well before you even thought about doing? No, this no, I hadn't. I went and sort of 
purchased as many sporting books as I mm-hmm. could gather that I, I thought would be interesting to me. So what would be some of those titles be? I, I mean, I read, I reread Friday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. Um, I reread uh, Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam. Um, I read um, A Season on the Brink by um, Feinstein. Um, I read uh, Collision Low Crosses, uh, which is really good. And that one was actually recommended to me in the very first meeting that I had with Hardwick. And I think it was part of what got the idea over the line. He was reading that book that off-season. He was like, oh, yeah, something like Collision Low Crosses. I'd never heard of it, um, but read it. It's about the New York Jets amazing book uh, and what else did I read I, I ordered so many that I didn't even get around to reading because I was I was instantly reporting and writing and doing mm. my chapters by night and full-time job by day like I, you've got a season with Verona there on the desk I've got that and still haven't cracked it open mm. um, I reread Among the Thugs uh, which is wonderful really short uh, excellent read about English football fans um, really visceral stuff uh, I picked up The Boys of Summer and then read uh, like one chapter before my father-in-law borrowed it and never returned it, so I still haven't <laughs> finished that one. Uh, and there are, there are plenty more, and they're all sort of clogging up my shelf. I read Side by Side, which is um, mm-hmm. a book by Peter Ryan about the Collingwood 2009 season. He didn't get quite as lucky as me. They, the poor guy, they won the flag one year later. You know, he just missed it. He just missed time his run. Uh, I read... Um, Western over the Southern Sky yeah, or the, the other one, yeah. the, the Flanners book, which is really great for a, a year in which the dogs didn't do much and were expected to do well. Um, I reread The Coach by the late John Powers, mm-hmm. um, which became sort of a something of a template for mm-hmm. me, I think. Um, and yeah, I'm sure there are others, but I just, just digested as many sort of season with books as I could and kind of cherry-picked ideas along the way. Like with John Power's book, for instance, I thought one of the most fascinating chapters was on The Psychologist. So immediately when I knew there were leadership sessions and mindfulness sessions at Richmond, I was like, all right, I've got to get in and mm. observe some of that up close. And I liked the way in his book it was a lot of... It was a, almost a... It was almost like he was a stenographer at times. It was a transcript of what was unfolding in front of him without really inserting himself into the narrative or mm. saying what it means. He was, well, you know, the writing thing. He was he was showing, not telling, mm. which I really liked. Yeah, and we've spoken about The Coach already on this podcast and there's probably about 20 titles that people can pick up and go with there. So you mentioned Damien Hardwick and you mentioned that he was probably the reason this got over the line. Mm. Um, we've spoken about this and inevitably when you write this sort of book, the senior coach or the head coach, whatever the sport tends to become this central figure and the coach is very much like that. It's just so centred around Ron Barassi. Mm. Um, Southern Sky, Western Oval becomes very centred around Terry Wheeler. So when you kind of went into this, did you know, and you say it almost in this book at the end, that Damien Hardwick would be as central to it as he is? Yeah, although I was really mindful of the fact that I, I didn't want to go down that exact path of um, constantly interviewing him and having his voice mm-hmm. uh, to me come over the top. I wanted him to come through in the book uh, through his words to the players and his words mm-hmm. to his assistant coaches. I wanted to capture that stuff. So it was it was good in another way in that it meant I wasn't constantly harassing him for time or yep. uh, I wasn't a 
yeah, hopefully an unwelcome presence. Mm. Um, I knew he'd be a big character in it, but um, fortunately he was such a compelling character this year, just with the mm. way he changed from 2016 to 2017, uh, the way he became a storyteller, um, the way his, the, the tone of his pre-game addresses shifted from these really great orations that sort of stirred you know, um, stirred passion and, you know, got people um, uh, having goose pimples and hair standing on end and stuff like that to this funny bloke that would just tell these dumb dad jokes and these stories <laughs> that go nowhere and they they mean nothing and he doesn't even riff on them. He just It's just like a way of calming everyone down mm. and just saying, well, you know, we're playing a game of footy tonight, but... Mm. Yeah, we're also just having a chat. So I just thought he was um, really impressive. It was impressive to see up close that somebody could let go of a mode they'd been operating in and find a new way to sort of exist in their role. Mm. It's interesting because I don't think it was Hardwick's, but the Amazonian dolphin story in the <laughs> book, I actually stole and used that with the hockey boys on the weekend. And some of them were like, what, what's this? Where have you plucked <laughs> this from? And I didn't actually tell them. Um, but it was they haven't forgotten it so Ben Rutten yeah. yeah it was Ben Rutten but just going back a step so you, when you wrote the first cut of this book I'm assuming you started writing it in 2016 and you got it way in and you had some chapters yeah I had a lot of chapters that um, are still just sitting on my laptop unused I mean like <laughs> the format of the book um, as you know from reading it there's you know games and there's various meetings mm. and different sort of scenes I capture and then there are obviously profile chapters mm. so I've got unprinted profile chapters on Brett Deledio on Tyrone Vickery you know, things that will just never <laughs> see the light oh. of day because I'm writing really about the 2017 season and they weren't there anymore this you know? needs a deleted scene like JK Rowling and I have compared this book to Harry Potter series for significance <laughs> in our household but she created Pottermore which is just the site for all her like random notes for Harry oh, Potter nice. and she basically turned it into something you could pay for that's what this is calling out for the deleted scenes from yellow and black um, again you might have some issues with printing it all so you got into this book but how different would it have been if you'd completed the book in 2016 to 2017 not just in terms of sales oh goodness um, well uh, it's funny you mentioned that about sales because I, I uh, obviously it, I think it's sold quite well thanks to the win but don't you reckon it would have sold to like non-Richmond supporters quite well if you'd captured the implosion of, of, a, of an opponent I think from the inside. had access, and that's probably my question is when, like when in both years did the coaches start to say, sorry, not today? Like was there a stage where they just go, like everyone who's not the nucleus get out because we're, we're about to get real? Uh, it never felt like they were actually excluding me, but they do. They would have certain meetings that generally would be open to lots of different people. And once in a while, they would just be like, uh, everyone but coaches and players, um, can, can you get out, please? And it wouldn't be just me who leave. It would be like the you know, head of communications from Richmond, who's basically an executive. You know? mm. And it was like, get out. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, and that, that happened after some losses, and they weren't sort of particularly bad ones, so I really don't know what it was they had to say behind closed doors, but um, I didn't begrudge them that because it really only happened maybe a, 
a handful of times mm. and, and only a few inner sanctum things was I um, not allowed to, to go into. I mean, obviously, I wasn't going to be sitting in there for Dustin Martin's um, contract negotiations. but Although that um, would have probably made a book in its own uh, right, yeah. I would have imagined. That's right. What was... And you mentioned the fact that there's no direct interview with Dusty in the book. Mm. What was the most... Other than that, what was the most frustrating exemption or thing that you didn't get that you really wanted to get? I don't know how much it would have yielded, but I never sat on the um, on the interchange bench. That was really mm-hmm. difficult to get access, not because of Richmond, but because of the AFL. They have really strict guidelines about who can be down there, and you basically have to have a specific club role that you're fulfilling. They can't just say, oh, Conrad's down there. You've, you've really got to be um, performing a job, mm-hmm. uh, and there was not really a job for me to do that they would you know put me in charge of so I didn't I didn't get to do that um other than that I did ask a couple of times like hey do you reckon I could um you know come over to Dimmer's house for dinner I thought that would be a really good little chapter is the Hardwick dinner table with you know Rioli and and Dimmer that would be great but I knew that was probably asking a bit much but that said you know I got got to I was really rapt that I got to speak to Bashahooli outside of the club and, mm-hmm. and, as you say, Peggy outside of the club. It was good to have a few scenes that mm. weren't set inside some office in Punt Road or on the you know ground at the MCG. Mm. Those were important chapters for me. It was important for me to have the chapter about Adelaide in Adelaide, you know, going over there, even though we got um, smoked. It was, it was good to at least travel with them um, once and write about that. And it was funny that you picked that game. And I think I've mentioned this in a tweet. The way that the crowd was described in that game was almost as perfect as I've had someone describe an Adelaide crowd. Because, well, for me, growing up watching footy at Adelaide Oval and being, you know, and this was the same at Footy Park, being in the minority, it's just unreal. It's so different. And I thought you captured that exceptionally well. Um, But where did you observe that game from? Was it from the grandstand? Uh, yep, but a few different spots. So uh, I um, had a seat um, right in front of Peggy O'Neill, actually, mm-hmm. and Brendan Gale, and watched part of it from there. And then I would also dip downstairs and watch a little bit from the race. And sometimes I'd dip down and be on the, the concourse, so I could be sort mm-hmm. of sort of you know in an echoey spot. And I sort of did that occasionally with games at the MCG too. I, began the sense that I wasn't getting a true um, representation of what was happening because I was behind glass. Like the media box at like the MCG, for instance, where all the print journals go, the sound is just so muted. So something like I saw the Dion Prestia goal in the qualifying final there after the the Dusty on Tom Stewart to Rewalt to Presti for three quarter time, you know, brought the out to. I would love to have heard how loud that was out in, out in the MCG, but I was indoors, you know. Mm. It's, I feel really like I'm not about to feel robbed. I got to spend an entire premiership year inside my club, but, um, but I would love to have heard that yell, mm. you know. And so it's funny, Flanners in the short long book, which we were talking about off air, talks about how Kevin Sheedy he thinks, took an interest in him because Flanners said that he didn't like watching footy from the press box. And so I'm getting the impression that you're very much in that category. You want to watch from the outer. Yeah, yeah. And I honestly, I probably regret watching as many games as I did in the press box. But mm-hmm. you have the convenience of sitting there typing it. Like I've just sketched down a bunch of 
pre-game talk or line meeting notes and it's like alright I want to get them into a chapter form and you've got this comfy spot with a barista making free lattes and stuff like that it was hard to sort of pass up but I swear after that um, missed goal experience throughout the next two um, finals I, I made sure that I was spending most of my time out in the outer and mm. it probably led to I, I think my description of the um, crowd in the GWS game was probably a bit more vivid than it had been in other chapters because of that because mm. I was willing to sort of go down and as I say move around from one spot to another and mm. see different groups and how they were acting and what they were doing yeah and you were with me when we saw we saw Wally Daly speak, who's a obviously a devout Richmond supporter. Um, do you think the prelim final was the most special, just simply because of the crowd? I'm just interested in. It's very. I mean, you're comparing like three lumps of gold, really. Wow. But um, was that the more special of the three? Um, no, I always tell people that my favourite final was the qualifying final. To be mm-hmm. honest, I think because mm-hmm. I just didn't. Um, I don't know, it was too fatalistic, you know. I was born of a certain era, as we've discussed, and it was just too hard to believe that we would actually mm. kick through and and beat them. And then for it to happen in such a fashion, I mean, we dominated the first <laughs> half and then we let them sort of sneak back in and all of a sudden you're halfway through the third quarter and what scores a level? How do mm. we let that happen? Uh, so for it then to just, the, the damn to burst, to have the... The Dusty to Jack to Prestia goal, to have Lambo running in and slamming one through, to have Koch spinning and getting hit and kicking that floater on the left and the per- all those perfect photos of him with the forearm coming forward and his whole team kind of hanging off the back of him. That was uh, the one for me. Um, mm. And I probably carried that all the way through that, not pessimism, but just really my optimism was really guarded throughout mm. I, didn't, I didn't cry when we won the grand final I cried at the first bounce of the grand final because it was like we're here. like I just could not believe we were here we were, we were at that place on that, that stage yeah. you know that was my moment I was on the brink all day pretty <laughs> GI so what point in the year did you think that they were a chance was there a specific Do moment the flag yeah did, where you just ran Oh, actually, hang on. Uh, yeah, I'm ashamed to admit, but I reckon the, the qualifying final. Mm-hmm. It took me that long to... Mm. I, I always thought we could give it a shake, but Christ, when we lost to Geelong, down at Geelong, mm-hmm. when they had all of those injuries and we had everything to sort of lock down and play for, I was like, that's that's not a good sign. And, and I also just had this weird intellectual way of rationalising what would happen in finals. So I was like... We've won because we are this pressure side, um, and I started listening probably too much to people telling us that we we didn't have class all over the field, and so I just believed maybe going into the finals that all of those other teams that have supposedly more class would also lift their pressure, and then it'd be just two teams with pressure but mm. one with with class, and I thought that would somehow win out. Mm. Um, and I, I regret that. I'm ashamed of that now. So you, because you, all that happened was Richmond's pressure went up again. Yeah. 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 Mm. But important probably in that, my, my theory is that those last two games were of the home and away season were really crucial to winning the flag because they finally mm. learned how to score. You know, the, the 
conventional wisdom might be that you want a good hard match going in or a real tune-up, but I reckon destroying Fremantle probably just taught them that they could kick a bag, mm. you know, that they could run over teams, and that's what they did for the rest of the year. I mean, I thought that was the moment for me where I went, maybe? But then I think after the Geelong final, and I was saying this to Dad on the phone, it was hard not to accept the reality because all of a sudden you're one win away from the grand final and by extension two wins away from actually winning it. So if you're not thinking about it at that point, it's never going to happen. It's just, I'm interested. I I was, uh, personally, I thought your answer to that question would be like round five or really early, having seen you be inside and seeing all of the, the sort of positive chat going on and the way that things changed. I expected that to be a really different answer. Top four, mm. those, that's absolutely true. Okay. Flag. It took me, took me, I needed more. There's a burden of proof there, you know. Mm. Um, I think if you ask them, I, I feel like the most special turning points for them in their belief probably were round five and um, uh, whatever the round was against GWS in the wet at the MCG. Mm. Because it's, it's easy to remember that the season was sort of on a, on a knife's edge there. If we'd, if we'd lost that, we dropped out of the top four. Mm. And we were probably only one game outside of the eight because it was such a log jam at the top. And yeah, I um I think when they beat GWS, that that mm. meant a lot to them internally. No, yeah, I think I actually called my column the day that we beat them. Can we say the F word yet? Because <laughs> I think that was like I went into that going, we're either looking at fumbling here and finishing ninth or top fours. Very, very realistic. And there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of those watershed moments. And you mentioned round five against Melbourne where we were probably lucky in the end to get away with a win. Um, it's just interesting that in the context of the year, there were so many of those points. There were, yeah. Uh, everything has to go right for you to win a flag. You know, you've got to jag some of those tight ones. But you know, that said, if you, if you believe, you know, we probably shouldn't have won against Melbourne, we'll... You've also got to say we probably should have won against GWS the first time around. We should have won against the Dogs and should have won against... Well, I don't go so far as Fremantle because we were terrible all day. Like, I was, it was almost... No, I mean, the St Kilda and Adelaide performances were the worst of the year. But apart from that, the Fremantle game, like, that team to show nothing for the first three quarters like that... One of the, the stellar bits in this book is there's a little passage where you go, this is actually an exchange between a player and a coach. And then you kind of go through and there's all of this lingo and you read it and you're like, what have I just read? It's like reading a different language. Mm. How hard was it for you to get your head around all the lingo? How much time did you spend with people explaining things to you? I wouldn't... I mean, there's so much of it that I still don't understand. Um, there, there's just too much terminology, whether it's mm. A1, D1, Barry, Terry... <laughs> Um, Pluto, side Pluto, double Pluto, Uranus cover. Um, it just, the umbrella, the nude, the spaceman, the Trump, the Obama, it just goes on and on and on. Um, so generally, I would just sort of tap someone on the shoulder after a meeting and try to figure out what two or three things were. And usually those guys were people like Jack Harvey, who's a, an analyst at the club, um, or Hayden Hill. Or some of the assistants like um, Lepich and McWalter is really great at explaining things. He's mm. an excellent coach and just good at yeah 
putting these things in your mind and I'm like, okay, well, if you can explain it that well to me, then, you know, then our 18 year olds who need to understand it are in really good hands. Yeah. And that as well, obviously, a lot of our sports can compete in US sports and their coverage, again, I suppose they have the mass of population to go real nerdy and have that written up on blogs and magazines and even you see drift into especially NFL where there's such a stop start game they can go into the deep of this is actually what they would call a Barry play what they would call a Trump play mm-hmm. do you think that will ever happen in the Australian environment where you see at the moment we have Fox Sports and they have the war room but it's still very much stuff that <laughs> everyone already can understand or see they're not going into you know holding patterns behind a stoppage play we're not going into A1 and D1 and D1 defence or this is a certain structure and this is what we're doing here to that, to that level do you think we're going to get to the whiteboard moment in in the public sphere, or? I'm not sure we will because I, I feel like um, you occasionally get that in the briefest of glimpses from players who have immediately left the game, mm. or those ones who are occasionally still playing and they and they call like you, you'll watch a match and there'll be some special comments from Scott Pendlebury or Luke Hodge, and you hear them start to use some of that language. Oh yeah, well. They've done really well there because Frio's got the plus one and even something as simple as the plus one uh, is something that the regular commentators never say or talk about. And then you think about the guys who are doing that war room analysis, your your David Kings and Alistair Lynch's and stuff, well, they haven't played the game in forever. They haven't been assistant coaches inside the system forever. Uh, and then every team plays so differently and it's such a weird variable kind of random game that unless you actually know what you're looking for, um, I, I don't think you can see it. So I used to find, I, I admit like in the two years I was writing the book, I found commentary like increasingly sort of frustrating. It, it is anyway, but um, I may have even mentioned it in the book or maybe it was something I cut mm. out, but they, they had one thing in 2016 where David King dissected what went wrong against Collingwood in round two when they came back and kicked the goal with like four seconds to go and he had like the seven deadly sins of Richmond like the things they got wrong and not one of them were things that Richmond were internally identifying they went through a really (laughs) rigorous review and I sat there and watched it and had them sort of point out everything that had been mucked up Um, and it was none of what King was identifying so mm. that, I think that just for me was a snapshot and yeah, the same thing happened with that Fremantle loss, the stoppage, the centre square stoppage, everybody had their theory on what Richmond had done wrong and no one seemed to say that the, the really crucial thing missing was somebody standing on the back of the square to get in the way of Lockie Neal so they didn't have a clear run mm. and good kick. Yeah. In the end, that was the only thing because I've just sort of reread that chapter because that was the only thing. So do you now find it, and you said commentary frustrates you, frustrates you do you find it hard to watch a commercial or a fox footy coverage that's breaking things down like that um yeah i mean i still find it interesting because often they're just talking about who's having a good game but i think when they are talking all that structure i just they might not have it wrong um but they don't know that they have it right and they talk with such certainty about what's happening and so that that annoys me somewhat Mm. yeah um I find that I, I think I'm going to really enjoy watching more games at the ground now than on TV as well because you just become so aware of what you're not seeing when you're watching it on TV. All that stuff that happens ahead of the ball and behind the ball, which was so crucial to Richmond this year. Yeah. Hmm. 
last year. Feels like this. <laughs> I'm gonna just go into grand final week. So talk us through what the week entailed for you. And I also have to ask, did you have a moment in grand final week where you went, if we win, this book is gonna go gangbusters? <laughs> I didn't have to do that because everybody was telling me that, you know. Um, uh, and, and then even after we won, the um, yeah players would walk by me as I was sitting in the hall typing stuff out. We did right by you. You're a millionaire now, mate. That's what Jaden Short would say or someone, you know. That. Um, yeah, uh, grand final week, it was um, amazing. I was still scrambling to sort of catch up with chapters, so I, I uh, based myself quite a bit at the club and would just go into whatever meetings I could. And um, it was it was great because there was so much action there. Whether it was like a um, you know a wealthy sort of um, booster or patron coming in and deciding that he'd pay for a fancy lunch for all staff and a barista cart to come in. Um, or uh, just special cultural sessions. There's there's part of the the book that describes like a um, a drum circle that they did for you know, whatever reason. But it was just this this fun kind of carnival atmosphere. Um, but then one trainer probably said it best that when they actually go downstairs to train, it's they switch on. They've got this white line at the bottom of the stairs into the gym and you cross it and you don't have your phone on and you're there for, to you know do business and mm. work hard and I just I reckon they struck that balance so well they're like we'll do all the media we'll go out and embrace it walking down the street and we'll have fun with this and then when we get into work we work yeah and did you notice a difference in mindset from what you were viewing of Adelaide externally and what you were seeing at Richmond yeah, that's a funny one just because so many people bring up those photos of, well, I mean, the, the footage of the two groups lining up in the anthem, mm-hmm. the power stance versus the locked arms, the, you know, deadly serious looking ahead and the big cheesy grins. That was quite funny to look at that with the um, the club photos before the grand final where they sit down, like all those cheesy smiles on the Tigers' faces. But... Um, I don't know where I sit on it. They certainly seemed more um, intent on controlling their environment. I mean, they went so far as to say that there was a ban inside the club on um, making jokes uh, to um, Jake Lever about potentially leaving. You know, there was to be no discussion of that. You know, they were just going to shut it down because they want to control everything. Whereas at Tigerland, you know... Uh, in a meeting, I think they showed footage of Dustin Martin as he was getting back off that plane from New Zealand and he had those two weird bounces like trailing him. And they're putting that footage on screen and Hardwick's like, who are these two blokes, Dusty? You know, um, just sort of making fun of him and the whole room's in stitches. And so, mm. yeah, I just, I think there were very different approaches. I'm not going to say that Adelaide got it wrong because anything can happen on the day and they were a supreme football club all year and they were missing um, McGovern and uh, Brody Smith in the grand final and Brody Smith is a you know tremendous attacking defender and McGovern takes you know seemingly impossible marks like mm. you never know what can swing a grand final so um, yeah I don't like to read too much into it but I do love that Richmond's approach worked for them. Mm. And this is a, a totally hypothetical question that we'll never know the answer to, but um, 
Would you have seen anything that you thought people would live to regret with the way they approached the week at Richmond if they'd lost? Flip those narratives around. Do you think Richmond would be looking back and saying we got things wrong or do you reckon they would have gone away from the grand final totally comfortable with how they approached everything and how they attacked everything? Uh, I'd say just because most of it was so in keeping with what they had done all year, it'd be hard to sort of regret any of those moments. Maybe they took it to a slightly bigger degree embracing you know, the hype around finals, but they had done that for the three weeks prior um, to mm-hmm. really good effect against um, Geelong and GWS. So it'd be hard to to fault their approach in grand final week because it, it had paid such dividends in mm. the rest of the finals. Yeah. So grand final day itself, you cried before the bounce. Talk us through that experience. Yeah, I, I didn't sit in the media centre, so they, mm. they must be overrun at that point. So I actually had a, a ticket to the game and um, and was sitting up in the old uh, Ponsford stand up the quite quite near the top and had a... Oh, a really, really nervous Richmond supporter bloke next to me, and um, he, he was a lovely guy, but he was just freaking out and he was burying his face in his hands when you know um, lost and fumbled and Betts kicked the goal, and then Sloan and Greenwood, and he was really hurting. Um, and then Richmond started to do well in the second quarter, and every time he got up to cheer, he would like stand up furiously quick and like grabbed my arm as he was doing it like he didn't realize he was next to someone but needed to hold on he was he was wonderful and then and then he learned that I was writing a book and that I'd be going down to the rooms at half time and talking to the coaches and listening in on everything and so when I got back he was still terribly terribly nervous and it was just like um what do they say what did they say you know I was like it's all good mate they've got this in hand they um they know that Adelaide haven't been in this position before. We've got this. He was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm sitting next to you. <laughs> like, he was just, he was, he was wrapped. Um, yeah, and then the rest un, unfolded as it, as it did. Um, yeah, I cried at the, I cried before the, the game just because, I don't know, it just seemed improbable that mm. we were there. Mm. Uh, I found it very hard to comprehend and it, the moment got the better of me with all of the... Yeah, the crowd, the blue sky, it was such a mm. such a gorgeous day for it. Uh, and then I probably believed, I reckon, that we were going to win um, a little bit earlier than, than some. Um, was it Townsend kicked a long-range goal in, early in the last quarter? Yeah. Mm. I, I actually felt like that stitched it up for us. I know a lot mm. of people needed to wait until Lambert ran down the wing and Prestia snapped, or mm. they couldn't believe until Butler kicks his screw mm. banana. Um, but... Yeah, when Towner nailed that bomb, I was like, that's it. Mm. That's it. Mm. <laughs> and my experience of it was really weird because I, even at quarter time, I was with my little sister at Punt Road and I thought, okay, yeah, we're four goals down, we're two goals down here, but we, I feel like we're actually all over them. Yes. And then the way the second quarter went, I just sat there and I watched it and I went, I, I almost didn't want to believe that we would win because I knew that the emotional letdown when we balls it up would be so massive. But I think in... I don't know why. I just felt like I knew very early in the second quarter that this was going to be our game because everything was going exactly as we needed needed it to. I don't know. I don't know whether there was a moment. There was certainly a little bit of panic in the last quarter, but I think it was for me when Walker kicked his captain's goal and then we scored straight after. And I just went, in normal sporting script, if there was a moment where they were going to come back, that was that moment. Yeah. 
I think a lot of people believe that too. I've got a really good friend who predicted a Richmond flag on the front page of the age at the very start of the season, Dan Flitton. Um, and, uh, and he said that for a moment after those, those two um, goals in a row, he was like, they're going to take this away from us. They're, they're going to take it away. Um, it was fleeting because, as you say, mm. we, we answered. But, um, God, there would have been so many hearts just stirring in that most awful and particularly Richmondy wow. way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So the final siren goes. You're still in the Ponsford stand at that stage? No, I had to make my way down. I knew that I wanted to get to the rooms um, and and the race. Um, probably came a fraction too late to get a wristband off someone, so I didn't get onto the ground. Um, again, just a minor disappointment. So I'm standing in the race and all of the VFL players are coming up behind and they're all in their suits and they're just so excited to get out there and celebrate. And Gil McLaughlin walks past, he's got the cup in hand ready to produce it and Ralph Carr's there and um, Rex Hunt and a few others, just everyone getting right up to the edge of the turf. And then, yeah, the siren goes. I, I, at that point, really had no idea where the ball was. Could barely sort of see it from tucked in there. But I was, um, yeah, just wrapped to watch it unfold, to watch staff members carry Koch's daughters out to him, to see Hardwick's um, two daughters and son fly out onto the, the deck and then just stand there and watch them all doing their thing in the centre, whether it's the, the board posing for a photo on the 50-metre line or... Lepich and McRae holding up four fingers because they won three at the, at the Lions and one now together at Richmond and um, just everybody celebrating in their own way and um, and then they come back down into the rooms and I've already sprinted in advance to sort of get a, a good spot uh, and so I'm standing on a chair. It's weird, you can't actually see me in the um, <laughs> in the footage of it but I'm literally standing on a chair directly behind Dustin Martin like he's he's within arm's reach of me but there's a, a sort of bit of cinder block kind of blocking me from the view but so that's where I was when they sung the song I was you know just right there singing it belting it out with them and then they break out the the beers and the pizza and and then the really special moment for me I guess it, apart from just seeing all the hugs and doling out a few myself is getting to go back into the briefing room again where it's just players and assistants and then a few others like the um, you know, um, the chief and uh, recruiters and people like that but being in there when they sing that song that, that sort of private moment which I taped on an iPhone and will and look at occasionally and enjoy um, yeah how just amazingly special and then to go off to I don't know Crown Casino afterwards for their kind of after party where they're presented to everyone and I didn't go to Swan Street, you know. I was I had to do that and write those notes. I didn't get to... That's probably the one sour thing in the whole experience, and it's not really sour, but I've got a lot of mates who are Richmond supporters, and I didn't go nuts with them on Swan Street. I didn't, I didn't have a beer with any of my close mates or family on the day itself, um, you know, just had to solely be there watching, writing things down, talking to people... Um, and then returned to Pont Road the next day and began capturing more. Yeah. Did did you feel a part of it? And by extension, did they make you feel like you're a part of it, or did you still feel a little bit fly on the wall even in those 
celebratory moments even though you by that stage had inevitably developed pretty good relationships with a number of people within that football club no I felt a part of it probably not um, <clears throat> with my interactions with everyone like there are some people who are more forthcoming and, and chatty than others um, but the moments that I was around those ones who are chatty um, they make you feel involved so a guy like Kane Lambert just smiles and has something nice to say to you every time he sees you and the same for like Jack and um, Dylan Grimes and then there are others that are sort of more standoffish I won't name them or anything like that but <clears throat> yeah I definitely felt like I was part of it just and that actually got sheeted home to me on the weekend I went up to see Richmond play Essendon in Wangaratta <coughs> and I was just there in civvies I wasn't wearing my Richmond gear as I did throughout the whole project uh and I was like, hey, Livo, uh, Tim Livingston, the coaching director, can I come across and say good day? you know, jump, pop into the rooms for old time's sake. And he was fine with that, you know, and I go and sit down and on the side of the room and everybody you know, comes up and shakes hands, how's the book going, you know, that sort of thing. But then there was a moment where it was like time for them to go into the briefing room and hear the coach's address. And you're like, I'm on the inside, but I'm on the outside of, of the inside. So... Um, yeah, contrasting that moment with how in a sanctum I was in 2017. Um, yeah, makes me feel like I really was part of it in some way. Mm. And it's it's just an amazing thing to have been able to do. I, I feel like I'm now inextricably sort of linked with this premiership year. I mean, if we don't win one for another 37 years or something there's this record of it, this this fairly rich in detail record uh, that people can read and uh, and I'm just humbled that I got to write it. I mean, I'm thrilled that it got written whether I was the writer or not, um, <laughs> but to, to also have been that guy, mm. just, you know, so blessed. And so Jack said last week, coming into the JLT Cup, he didn't actually care if he won a game this year. In fact, he said, I'd almost get the extent of just re-watching last season again. <laughs> so now it's just relief and it can be like if we do the dogs and we don't make final and we have a hangover and all those other things does that would that be upsetting to see because obviously not only did you get to witness a premiership you also got to witness a plan a process mm. come off and for that to have not worked the next year kind of I think we diminish that a little bit because you kind of go well then was it yeah was it just the start of mine as opposed to you know, this build process from selecting those draftees 10 years ago to getting to backing the coach who you didn't perform in 2016 to backing the coach again and now hopefully seeing it continue on. I think um, you know, if, we, if we go through the season and we're doing quite poorly, then it'll start to grate on me. But actually, no, I have the, the same view. I did a book talk late last year and it might have been going too far, but... I just said I was feeling that good and so, sort of still am after the flag that, like, if we lose to bloody Carlton, who I loathe in round one, it'll be like, meh, eh. I mean, <laughs> worst things have happened. Um, mm. They really have. Uh, no, so uh, I also just feel like, and I don't know, but probably some Richmond supporters out there are, are like this as well. I, I began to develop a lot of um, bitterness around football when Richmond were doing so badly and, and getting knocked over and 
I felt like I'd come up with a new reason to hate almost every club out there. Like, it's easy enough always to sort of hate Essendon and Carlton and mm. Collingwood, but then I was coming up with reasons to, like, hate North because they <laughs> pummeled us this one day or they knocked us over in Tassie and then the final, well, suddenly they're on the list. Yeah. Um, I began to hate any club that went the cheap and easy route of, like, tanking in order to rebuild when I thought Richmond did a much more honourable thing just try and draft talent and bring in some mature ages like Hooley and Griggs. So that meant that I started to dislike, you know, St Kilda. Um, I, I didn't rejoice uh, when the Dogs won in 2016, oh, which is man. a really rare point <laughs> I, of view. I'm with you on this one. Yeah. Oh, it was a really... I thought, I thought, I thought it was a rare point, point of view. I felt like I was the only person in Melbourne that was like, how can I be happy for these guys? I want this for my team. I don't want it for your team. My team suffered more than your team in, in some ways. Um, mm. I know they've been longer without a flag, but they had all this success. They were, they were in consecutive prelim finals like you know, a handful of years ago. Mm. What right do they have to just suddenly be terrible for five mm. years and get all these hot draft picks and these bloody lucky father-sons like Wallace and Liberatore in the same year and... Um, and guys yeah. resurrecting themselves and having no legs too. Oh, there's the bye week and then suddenly... Exactly, the bye free. week. The bloody bye week and then that free against Hannibal. And even that in that game, Sydney should have won that grand final in the first quarter and they don't kick their goals. And if you don't take your chance, you don't win games. <laughs> Uh, yeah. History Clearly found a kindred spirit. Oh, I thought it was the only one. This is to be outnumbered in a room of three men and be the man that doesn't, <laughs> the only man that loves the Bulldogs Premiership. That's ten out of ten to you. <laughs> Do you? And have you had the thought that in maybe sixty years' time, someone will pick this up and this will be the account of the Richmond Premiership in twenty seventeen? Have you looked at it from that perspective in a, in a very futuristic sense yet? Yeah. Yeah. I. Um... I just I feel like I've been lucky enough to create a kind of time capsule and I just hope it um, you know it has that longevity because mm. I've read the coach three or four times and mm. I don't care about North Melbourne uh, it's mm. just interesting to be able to see what football was like then and I'm sure it's going to change a heck of a lot in the next three decades and maybe there'll be something something there that makes it worth reading I guess because it has such a great Climax, a, a flag, you know, an mm. unlikely flag, a famous one. Um, I would love to think that people are still reading it then, and mm. maybe it even goes back into reprint at some point, mm. 25th anniversary edition or something. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the coach because that was Slattery as well, and they reprinted it after John Powers passed away recently. And I, I just think it's interesting to, yeah, imagine someone reading your book in 50 years' time. It must, it must make you immensely. I don't know, proud, really, to have some sort of legacy that's there forever. Yeah, yeah. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I, I hope all the players, like, read it on the, you know, 10-year anniversary of their, their famous premiership just to remember what it was like because memories sort of fade, but the, the printed word sticks. Mm. You know, it's always there. Just so pumped. Did you learn anything over the course of the year about, or did it change your perception on things like mindfulness and male relationships? We did, was there anything that you came out of this that made you a better person having experienced a high-performance environment? Um, 
maybe not on the male relationships front. I mean, I know that they're the brotherhood that they assembled mm-hmm. through the Triple H sessions. That's been sort of well documented. But I, I've always felt that football clubs are really welcoming, inclusive environments that you know, kind of scaffold people's lives in general. I, I, as I said, I played in... Um, played in a, a range of clubs as a, as a kid and an adult and I always remember that you know there was the the, the guy who you know, had a developmental disability or something and he would come along and he would kind of train by himself on the oval but I often thought about that guys like that they'd be there two nights a week for training and then they'd come and cheer us on in the, the game on the weekend and go back to the club afterwards and I'm like without a football club what, what exactly does that guy have in his community what sense of belonging does he have um, so uh, maybe not that. What was the the other one? Sorry, um, mindfulness. mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, and that's a tricky one because I'm a real a real believer in what Emma Murray um, does, and I think it's obvious that it's something that's spreading throughout professional sport, not just here, but it's been used to, to great effect in you know, the Buffalo Bills, for instance. They've um, changed their culture on the basis of that kind of stuff, but. Um, it's one of those things where maybe it's more important that the players believe it works than whether it actually works. Mm-hmm. It, it could be quite a sort of placebo effect, really. They um, they think it's harnessing some new power, and if they think it strongly enough and it works for them, then um, that's great. But, yeah, I uh, can't fault it when the best player in the league has his greatest season ever potentially the greatest season ever by an individual in AFL and it just happens to be the year that he adopted mindfulness as a regimented part of his preparation mm. talking about Dusty here and his mm. obsession with it and you know, so going so far as to pop over to Emma Murray's house the night before a game when it was possible and to own his three words that he says to himself during the game um, unstoppable, aggressive um, strong yeah. Did you, when you talk about Dusty meditating, I'm struck by an enormous desire to see that because it seems slightly at odds with the figure. Did mm. you ever actually see him meditating? Yeah, yeah, plenty of times. So um, often they'd set aside a little room or a corner of a room before a game so that guys could do mm. their own sort of visualization exercises and they all have different stances. So David Asprey's a believer of it and he'll be sitting in a chair, you know, straight back, closed eyes, hands um, on each knee, whereas Dusty is um, crossed legs like in the schoolboy uh, photo pose um, with his earbuds in, eyes closed, um, hands literally in that yogic pose, resting on his knees, palms turned upward. and, and lots of them embrace it in that way. I've been in mm. sessions where uh, all the players are lying on the floor in darkness at Punt Road upstairs and the person is above them walking them through their, their visualisation exercises. And, yeah, not all of them are believers, but um, enough of them are. And, mm. yeah, why not just feed belief? Mm. Yeah. The Dalai Dusty. Um, <laughs> so right. do you meditate? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. Um, feel like I'm too time poor, which probably means I should meditate. <laughs> um, Perhaps. No, nah, I, I think I'll probably do something that borders on that when I run. Um, yeah, get into yeah. a zone and hmm. um, think deeply and uh, 
end up writing leads to stories in my head and then when mm. I've exhausted all of that I do find that I've, I've run for 20 minutes and not really thought about anything mm. yeah is that a, a way that and was that something you did during the year while you were assembling the book in terms of running and thinking about your ideas and writing and I don't know what do you have you got goals with running is there a specific little thread there that you pursue away from writing as well I, I <coughs> wanted to do a lot of running while I was doing this project because I was mm. mindful that I was going to be working full-time, um, teaching journalism by night and writing a book while um, being a, a husband and father. And I was like, as much as it <laughs> sounds like you're just asking to do something else in an already time-poor state, I felt like if I ran, I would I, it would give me the energy to do all of those things. Now, I actually didn't. I got really slack and I would get lazy because oh, it's been such a long day so I really didn't take care of myself at all last year I let myself go a little bit but um, I did run throughout the finals had a weird <laughs> thing happen where um, we beat I think we were halfway through the St Kilda game and they were threatening in the third quarter and that would have cost us a top four spot I believe and I said to myself if we if we win this game, if we win this game, we'll be in the top four, we'll be in the finals. I will run every day. I'll, I'll, just as if it was my offering to the footy gods. Like, I will punish myself and I will go for a run every single day until the season is over if we can just beat St Kilda, please. Mm. Um, and then we did. And so I, I ran every single day, whether it was 5Ks or 8Ks or 3Ks. But every single day I found, got up early or stayed up late and found the time to run until we finally won the flag and I didn't I didn't no I did run on grand final day before the game thank god just to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then I promptly stopped um and uh, and now I need to start back up again because I, I used to run marathons and I, I felt like I did a lot of my best thinking about writing while I was running like I can't tell you how many stories where I've come up with my lead while going for a jog and rolling ideas around in my head love that because there's a scene in Game of Thrones where Catelyn Stark um, talks about how she promised to look after Jon Snow as if he was her own child sorry yeah. he was yeah you know what I mean and she didn't and then obviously we all know what happened to the Stark clan if we watch Game of Thrones so I can, right. I'm very glad you kept up your running because otherwise we probably wouldn't be here well we would potentially be here and the book <laughs> would still exist but we wouldn't quite have the ending that it I told one or two people in, inside the club that I was doing that and they, they looked at me with a totally straight face and were like, well, keep running. They weren't, they weren't <laughs> messing around. They believe in the footy gods. So, yeah, yeah, that was my offering. Do you believe, do you actually believe in the footy gods? That's a highly philosophical question. <laughs> uh, no, I believe in momentum, though. Mm. I believe strongly in, in the power of momentum, which is why... I, just never know what's going to happen in any season because mm. I think the smallest thing can throw out a quarter and that can throw out a game and a game can throw out a month of football and before mm. you know it, your season is sort of shot. Um, yeah, I'm a believer in momentum. So mm. if you can do anything that keeps that going and keeps that positive mindset um, yeah, in the in the present day, then goes a long way it's interesting because I driving in I was listening to a monocle podcast with Ed Smith who's a cricket writer in the UK he was also a fairly philosophical cat I think he got a double first at Cambridge which wow. was mind boggling but um, he 
wrote a book about luck and the role of luck in sport. Yeah. And it's interesting you meant to mention momentum because he talks about that quite a lot. But how much luck do you have to have to win one of these bloody things? So much. I mean, mm. we had we had some injuries, but none of them sort of piled on all at once. And I don't know, we had a really good rehab campaign, so those guys seemed to come back and slot right in and play even better. Like mm-hmm. Nathan Broad was so much better. Um, uh, post-injury than he was pre-injury and then mm. Blostone was in great nick and even Basher having a sort of suspension for a few weeks seemed to sort of freshen him up and he, he finished off the year with a bang so there's that kind of luck but I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into it because we did have that run of three losses or sorry four losses but three of them were, were close and, mm, mm. and hinged on a bit of bad luck and that would also sort of um, rule out my whole momentum thesis as well. Isn't it extraordinary that we had a run mm. of four straight losses this mm. season, but didn't let it derail the season? Mm. I, I look back on that every now and again and go, how do we how do we pull that off? If you're losing that many games by close margins, that tells me that you're very very good, mm. as well as the potential. And I'll make this argument later with Melbourne in terms of how many close losses they had. I think that tells you. Yeah, quite a lot both ways. Mm. It can sort of derail you, but it can also tell you that you're better than you might think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Melbourne's an interesting case in point because I, I really fear them this year. I think mm. they're, I think they might have the best, you know, pure talent kind of list in the league. To be honest, mm. and they're a very young one, so you think there'll be a lot of incremental gains from those guys, mm. and, and they have their own particular shtick about the way they play. Like they're they're big and they're mean, and they hit people, and they deal with the fact that players are going to be suspended, and but they stand over opponents and they bully them, and I just think if that team gets on a roll they have all of the pieces in place across mm. the field um, mm. I'm probably more wary of them than, than any outfit this mm. year I think coming into it which is strange for a team mm. that sort of coughed it up against a lesser opponent in the last round like the only hope I have because I don't like Melbourne either um, is uh, is that they pull a Melbourne So final question, and you went down to Wangaratta on the weekend and you mentioned that. Mm. Um, A, what did you see? This is part of our JLT section of the podcast. And B, what is your honest, true consensus for the year, knowing everything that you do know? Um, What did I see? I saw Shea Bolton show that he is the ideal person to just step right into Daniel Rioli's shoes. And if he keeps playing that brand of football, he'll actually... It'll actually mean Daniel has to work really hard to win back his spot whenever mm-hmm. he's fit. Um, I feel like I saw the speed and the kicking and the desire from someone like Jaden Short that proves he can play top-level football. Mm-hmm. I just hope we can hold on to him for a long time because he seems the obvious kind of successor to Basha Hooley for me. Um, I'd love for him to get some more game time because he kicks... Like, you wouldn't even know which foot he prefers he's that good on, mm. on both and then being so fast and he's a bubbly great character I'd love to see him succeed mm-hmm. um, but mainly I just saw the team do exactly what they did towards the tail end of last year and I'm so thrilled to see that they're going to bring all of that again because 
even before everything clicked into place in 2017, it was this sustainable brand where it was always going to be really aberrant for us to get blown off the park. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been crying out for for so long is a team that we can go along and watch and have faith that they will give their all and show that to us in the form of tackling and chasing and playing football with desire and um i just i really think they can go again um mm. so many things have to fall into place you need the, that good run with injuries or you need to somehow spectacularly defy it like the bulldogs did um I don't know if our draw is particularly hard, but that, that is a factor. Like, if, mm. it, if it's a harder draw, well, you know, that means tougher opponents. And, you know, the odds say that it's more difficult. But I just, I'm, I'm confident that we can finish top four and give it another shake. Mm. Yeah. Probably my parting question is more towards your fandom. So, I spent over the last probably decade, half decade, we've seen just droughts broken in all facets. Mm. The most interesting one for mine had been the Chicago Cubs in baseball because mm. their drought was so long. They actually, there's been two or three really like in-depth personal memoirs saying they actually have to learn how to be a fan again because mm. the Cubs went from being terrible to cursed to just despondent and now they've built another like sustainable system where they have a good farm, they have good players constantly, they can, they can use their own talent or surplus talent as, as trade bait to get instant success into cover injuries. And they have to go and realise that, oh, no, we're now the, we're now the Yankees. We're now the, the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll have to kind of re-accabulate themselves with that. Are you, you're having, this is your first premiership, are you ready for that or have a little bit of that, you know, underdog? Do you miss that being under or are you prepared to be, hopefully, like the whole, a Hawthorne dynasty or a Lions dynasty? No, I'm, I'm ready for that. And I think what makes it a little bit easier and um, um, kind of good for us fans and also for the Tigers themselves is that people still don't rate us. I mean, maybe that's changed after the demolition show that they put on on the weekend. But what was it? The, the Most pundits were still tipping us for sort of six yeah, through six ten, ten. Or mm. something like that. Mm. I mean, what more did we have to do? In, we <laughs> defeated the top three teams in emphatic style and you still don't believe. So that's great. If yeah. people don't rate us and don't think, then mm. that weight of expectation is instantly yeah. lifted again, isn't it? Yeah. Um, or at least that's the way it feels to me. Mm. So no, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to be an insufferable bastard in the grandstands, you know, just talking about the premiership whenever I can. And I, when I went up to Wang, I was hanging out with... Uh, with Dan Flitton and, and a couple of um, Bombers supporters as well and we, we were just terrible we just <laughs> could not help but just dissect every awesome player and yeah. remind people that we're the reigning premiers Which I love being in that position we need to do so much of in the coming months Yeah, um, and I'm sure that we all will um, thanks for joining us so much Conrad it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm sure this podcast is useful for more than just Tigers fans, or at least I hope it is. But you know, Tigers fans, it's been a good one just for you, anyway. Oh, I Thanks very much. It. Loved it. Like the
skin. If we're behind, then never mind. We'll fight and fight and win, for we're from Tigerland. We never weaken till the final siren's gone. Like the tiger.